0: This is the Virginia Woolf podcast, which is made in association with Literature Cambridge. My name is Dr. Karina Jakubovic, and in this series, I discuss one of our greatest writers with a host of fascinating guests, all of whom are united by one thing they're all fans of Virginia Woolf. It's a Wednesday in the middle of June 2023. 100 years since Clarissa Dalloway decided to kindle and illuminate, to give her party. Of course, Wolfe's novel is about so much more than just a party. It concerns the lovesick memories of Peter Walsh, the emotional frustrations of Richard Dalloway, the nascent aspirations of his daughter Elizabeth. And of course, there's the tragic death of Septimus Smith, not to mention the broken dreams of his wife, Retzia. This is a monumental novel about love, loss and the passage of time. And there's only one person who I think can do it justice on a day like today, and her name is Professor Dame Gillian Beer. Professor Beer will be well known to some of you as a leading literary critic and a preeminent Wolfian. She's had a long career at the University of Cambridge, not least of all as a Fellow of Girton College, a role that she occupied for 30 years. She was also a King Edward VII Professor of English Literature and later became President of Clare Hall. Her wonderful books, including Arguing with the Past, Darwin's Plots and Virginia Woolf the Common Ground, have had an enormous impact on my thinking and on that of so many people that I know. Since this is a special occasion, I've decided to step back from the microphone and allow Professor Beer to give a lecture instead. Now, I've been lucky enough to listen to this lecture in advance, and it's absolutely wonderful. I think it's one of the most beautiful talks I've ever heard on Wolfe's writing. Its title is, For There She Was, Love and Presence in Mrs. Dalloway.
1: Let me start out with an experience that most of us have had, waiting at the train station, at an airport, at a party, for the one you're expecting and hoping for. The platform's full of people streaming by, it's busy but blurred. Then the one person appears, changed abruptly from an idea to a body, perceived with height and weight and gait. My sensation is always one of excitement and alienation at once. Can this be the one I've looked for? Who is this? A new world opens. Is it home? Where is death? I've taken the final sentence of the novel, which is set alone as the starting point from which my exploration here unfurls. For there she was. In that final moment, we're looking through Peter Walsh's eyes, as he puzzles over his enduring feeling for Clarissa Dalloway. I will come, said Peter, but he sat on for a moment. What is this terror? What is this ecstasy, he thought to himself? What is it that fills me with extraordinary excitement? It is Clarissa, he said, for there she was. Emerging from hidden sources, from things... Half-known, submerged, comes up seemingly explanatory word, for, which launches and deepens the resonance of a perfectly humdrum sentence, there she was, for there she was. Much earlier in the work, as Peter walks through London, he recalls their youth at Bourton and Clarissa's presence there. She came into a room. She stood, as he had often seen her, in a doorway with lots of people round her. But it was Clarissa one remembered. Not that she was striking, not beautiful at all. There was nothing picturesque about her. She never said anything specially clever. There she was, however. There she was. In Mrs Dalloway, that experience of presence, there she was, is repeated, sometimes with ecstasy, sometimes with disappointment. It's intensified, too, by all the unexpected returns. Peter's back from India after five years, calling on Clarissa unannounced at the awkward time of 11 in the morning. Sally, long ago beloved, appearing at the party uninvited, transformed into a middle-aged mother of boys with a wealthy manufacturer husband. Evans, beloved wartime companion returning from the dead, to Septimus in a vision or hallucination. The dead were in Cecily, Evans sang, among the orchids. There they waited till the war was over, and now the dead, now Evans himself, For God's sake, don't come, Septimus cried out, for he could not look upon the dead. But the branches parted. A man in grey was actually walking towards them. It was Evans! but it is just Peter strolling in the park. Horror and happiness repeatedly jostle for predominance in the telling of this story. The tone veers between mock heroic and tragedy. The day of the novel is a Wednesday in mid-June 1923. Virginia Woolf is writing into the melee of the present. There's very little time gap between the day she records and the days while she's writing it. One day here can span prehistory and future extinction. We're told, when London isn't grass-grown pass and all those hurrying along the pavement this Wednesday morning are but bones with a few wedding rings mixed up in their dust and the gold stoppings of innumerable decayed teeth. The texture of the writing is light yet thronging, past and future stand here side by side. Clarissa returns to the crowded room of her climactic party to which all has been tending in this novel and which we reach only on the final pages. She returns from an extreme solitary meditation on death in which she has identified with a young man she has never met and knew nothing of until that night, Septimus Warren who has killed himself that day. The gap between these two people seems immense. Society hostess, traumatised war survivor. How may she claim kinship? How can the novel? Virginia Woolf shared her character's puzzlement about Clarissa, why did she keep coming back to be thought and felt again? Hadn't she been dealt with in The Voyage Out, where she and her husband Richard are minor and not particularly agreeable characters? Was she a bit tinselly? Wolfe wolf-worried as she wrote The Hours, which became inescapably centred on Mrs Dalloway again? And surrounding that book... Mrs Dalloway's party has also generated a group of short stories, persuasively gathered together by Stella McNichol as a sequence. Those stories all have to do with loneliness, with the misfitting contacts at a party, the attempts to speak truth, the failures, the absurdities, the abject jostling of one person against another, the momentary and ecstatic coming together, and then the abrupt depletion. For example, there's one called Together and Apart, where Mr Searle and Mr Atning have an awkward conversation, but then discover a joint enthusiasm for Canterbury which resonates with their separate past lives. She thinks, of all things, nothing is so strange as human intercourse, she thought, because of its changes, its extraordinary irrationality. Her dislike being now nothing short of the most intense and rapturous love. But directly the word love occurred to her, she rejected it, thinking how obscure the mind was, with its very few words for all these astonishing perceptions, these alternations of pain and pleasure. At the party and elsewhere, Clarissa Dalloway makes possible much that she cannot encompass. The novel explores that interland and those surroundings, each of them revealed as another centre of being, another person renewed and ravaged. In the course of the novel, the word love is constantly invoked, but it's also constantly repudiated, confronted. It's an awkwardness, an impediment, even a horror as well as occasionally a rapture. Sometimes it presents as bodily absurdity, as when Peter Walsh tries not to think of Clarissa, but, we're told, she kept coming back and back like a sleeper jolting against him in a railway carriage. For Richard Dalloway coming home to Clarissa with a bunch of flowers, I love you, is painfully impossible to utter. Yet, happiness is this, he thought. Though he has not told her in so many words that he loves her, he has held her hand. Into their conversation comes Miss Kilman, the governess of German ancestry, who has engrossed Elizabeth and caused Clarissa terrible jealousy as she sees her daughter Elizabeth withdraw. But it might only be a phase, as Richard said. Such as all girls go through, it might be falling in love. But why with Miss Kilman? Love and religion, thought Clarissa, going back into the drawing room, tingling all over. How detestable, how detestable they are. For now that the body of Miss Kilman was not before her, it overwhelmed her. The idea. Miss Kilman is the object of love and hatred mixed, from Clarissa, even from the narrator, with her greed and red face and good works and inner intensity. Ah, but she must not go. Miss Kilman could not let her go. This youth that was so beautiful, this girl whom she genuinely loved, her large hand opened and shut on the table. Miss Kilman there, as you can hear, needs and receives the narrator's reinforcement with that word genuinely, whom she genuinely loved. We're being told that... From outside, as it were, she disrupts the surface emotions of the book. Miss Kilman is the disagreeable victim who tests others' capacity for love. She's enclosed, extreme in her suffering, but another war victim, utterly unlike, and yet alongside Septimus and his Italian wife Arezia. Those who are despicable in this work exercise power as intrusion. The ghastly Hugh Whitbread, who forcibly kissed Sally at Borton and is now kowtowing at court. The two doctors, one the ignorant Dr Holmes, who thinks Septimus a coward and covertly insinuates himself on Retzia, we're told. Really, he had to give that charming little lady, Mrs Smith, a friendly push before he could get past her into her husband's bedroom. The other, the expert Sir William Bradshaw, who recognises that Septimus is extremely ill, but who worships proportion and shuts people up, insisting that Septimus must be parted from Rexia and isolated in order to recover. But remember, too, that that same Bradshaw is working with Richard Dalloway to bring forward a long-delayed bill that will acknowledge the deferred effects of shell shock. We can never take a single judgment in a Virginia Woolf novel. The one word love, then, has to cover an extraordinary array of sensations in the novel, here evoked as even independent of language. Astonishing perceptions, these alternations of pain and pleasure. The question of kinship runs through the whole book, kinship which we often take as having some measure of love. What here is the source of affinity? Is it family? Class? Memory? London? Sexual desire? Or simply being alive today in these just post-war years where everyone is a survivor? We're told. For it was the middle of June. The war was over except for someone like Mrs Foxcroft at the embassy last night eating her heart out because that nice boy was killed and now the old manor house must go to her cousin. Grief and property are there tangled together. Clarissa's love for Sally in her youth, Septimus's for Evans, Miss Kilman's for Elizabeth, are all same gender. But they have little else in common. Love may ignore gender, even while it intensifies the glories of gender. And death and love are here endlessly entwined. Two fragments from Shakespeare haunt the novel at its heights of intensity. Clarissa, in you thinking of Sally, remembers Othello. If it were now to die, to now to be most happy. And the funeral song from Cymbeline, Fear No More the Heat of the Sun, comes back repeatedly. Septimus, we're told, goes to war to save an England that consisted almost entirely of Shakespeare's plays and Miss Isabel Pole in a green dress walking in a square. The novel is crowded with named persons about whom we know little individually. They're held together by a car backfiring explosively, a plane flying over trailing a slogan, an evening party, a sliver of extreme experience. Some of the names seem to function as class stags. Molly Pratt, Sarah Bletchley, Emily Coates, Mr Bentley, little Elise Mitchell, Mrs Dempster and Maisie Johnson, who's in London for the first time and who, we're told, should she be very old, she would still remember and make it jangle again among her memories. How she'd walked through Regent's Park on a fine summer morning Fifty years ago. She asks the way of Retzia and Septimus, and she feels the mystery and terror of their situation. Quarrelling, perhaps. Parting for ever, perhaps. She feels their extremity, but she has no words to encompass it save, oh. And she acts out a shard of what is to come. We're told twisting the knob of the iron railing. Horror, horror, she wanted to cry. She'd left her people. They'd warned her what would happen. Why hadn't she stayed at home, she cried, twisting the knob of the iron railing. It's a passing encounter, like many in this urban setting, though it leaves an imprint, because the novel recognises that the ephemeral may be everlasting like the clouds overhead, repeatedly described and always shifting. There was a perpetual movement among them. Signs were interchanged when, as if to fulfil some scheme arranged already, now a summit dwindled, now a whole block of pyramidal size which had kept its station inalterably advanced into the midst. Fixed though they seemed, nothing could be fresher, freer, more sensitive. Elizabeth, walking alone and free towards St Paul's, experiences both the clouds and the noise of the crowd equally as consolatory, indifferent. And those sounds include the trumpets of the unemployed with their military music blaring, rattling about in the uproar. Like the old woman who sings in the novel opposite Regent's Park Station – and she was still there in my youth – the crowds utter words that are indecipherable and primordial, heard by Peter. The old woman sings, Ium faum so, for sweet to the voice of no age or sex, the voice of an ancient spring spouting from the earth. Her love has become a timeless song. We're here. With her right hand exposed, her left clutching at her side, stood singing of love, love which has lasted a million years, she sang, love which prevails, and millions of years ago her lover, who had been dead these centuries, had walked, she groaned with her in May. But in the course of ages, long as summer days, and flaming, she remembered, with nothing but red asters, he had gone death's enormous sickle has swept those tremendous hills. The near encounter between the woman singing and Peter Walsh hearing looks far back and as far forward into the time when the pageant of the universe would be over. It's one of the moments of full accord and presence in the novel expressed as anonymity, grandeur, And indeed, absurdity. Another beautifully unexpected is the comic idyll around the making of Mrs. Peter's hat, where Septimus and Retzio work together, finding scraps of colour, laughing, making. I quote, It was wonderful. Never had he done anything which made him feel so proud. It was so real, it was so substantial Mrs. Peter's hat. Just look at it, he said. Yes, it would always make her happy to see that hat. He'd become himself then. He'd laughed then. They'd been alone together. Always she would like that hat. That distant tense in Retzia's Italian English flings the scene back into the past even as we share in it in its moment now. Rezia will triumph, Septimus believes. She will be with him. She was a flowering tree. No one could separate them, she said. But after the coming of the small girl with the evening paper, there's Dr Holmes on the stairs, intercepted by Rexia, but approaching like a fatality to tear them apart. We're told He could see her like a little hen, with her wings spread barring his passage. But Holmes persevered. In that endless moment... When Retzia has left the room, Septimus must act to thwart the brute with the red nostrils. But how? He looks round with ungainly and perfect courtesy, itself a kind of love. And we're told, getting up rather unsteadily, hopping indeed from foot to foot, he considers Mrs. Filmer's nice, clean bread knife with bread carved on the handle. Ah, but one mustn't spoil that. It's a moment of the most appalling comedy, in which, about to kill himself, he has to decide to behave properly. When Clarissa hears in the middle of her party that a young man had killed himself, she intuits immediately that the oppressiveness of Sir William Bradshaw has played its part in his fate. The crucial question she then asks herself is, but this young man who had killed himself, had he plunged holding his treasure? If it were now to die, to now to be most happy, she said to herself once, coming down in white. At the moment before his death... Septimus thinks ruefully of the tiresome, the troublesome, the the melodramatic business of opening the window and throwing himself out. It was their idea of tragedy, not his or Retzia's, for she was with him. Holmes and Bradshaw liked that sort of thing. He sat on the sill, but he would wait till the very last moment. He did not want to die. Life was good, the sun hot. Only human beings? Grounded in the moment, rejecting grandiose tragedy, lovingly at one with his wife, he plunges, indeed, holding his treasure. Clarissa, intuition matches, it seems, Septimus's experience, though that other question does remain. Only human beings? Clarissa's sudden unexpected happiness alone in the small room after hearing of Septimus's suicide, odd, she thinks, incredible, she'd never been so happy, suggests reconciliation and an opening out. And then comes the grounding moment of unforeseen possible mutuality. At intervals throughout the novel, Clarissa has observed the old lady in the building opposite, moving about in her bedroom, unaware that she is being seen. Her recurrence, her being there over the years, registers what we're told is the privacy of the soul, and it's filled Clarissa with a sense of the miraculous. How extraordinary it was. Strange, yes, touching to see the old lady. The supreme mystery was simply this. Here is one room, there another. Did religion solve that? Or love? Now an answer seems on the brink of being found when Clarissa parts the curtains. Oh, but how surprising. In the room opposite, the old lady stared straight at her, She was going to bed. The gaze seems at last mutual. But the passage leaves still a doubt. It was fascinating to watch her moving about, the old lady crossing the room, coming to the window. Could she see her? Tentative as it is, this recurring moment of seeing into another unknown life living alongside without invasion, reconciles Clarissa to death and to continuing in life. She thinks she must assemble and she came in from the little room. The final scene of the novel is between Sally and Peter until the last sentences. Then all the unknown, half-known others Alive, alone, and together, dead, alone, and together, across time, assemble with Clarissa. For there she was.
0: Thank you for listening. The Virginia Wolf Podcast was produced by Alistair Elphick. The music was Three Pieces for Piano by Nadia Boulanger and performed by Ellie Welsh. And if you're interested in lectures on literature and the arts, then do head over to literaturecambridge.co.uk.